Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Just before we delve into today's case, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to everyone who has supported this channel by purchasing something from our online store. 10% of each purchase is being donated to the DNA Doe Project, which is a charity that I've spoken about a lot on this channel. There have been a few issues with the international shipping over there, which have all now been fixed. So if you tried to check out on the online store before, but were met with astronomical shipping prices, then head back on over and try again as the shipping prices should be considerably cheaper now. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Schenectady County, New York, February 4th, 1986. A mother is brought in for questioning by the police following the untimely death of her five-month-old baby. But what the authorities would uncover would shock the country. In a case of nine murders, medical inconsistencies and psychological illness, let's discuss the case of Mary Beth Tinning. Mary Beth Rowe Tinning was born on Friday the 11th of September 1942 in the small town of Duinsburg. Her upbringing and childhood was fairly average. She had one younger brother and attended the local high school where she achieved fairly average grades. Her father worked in the nearby General Electric as a press operator and her mother was a stay-at-home mum. The relationship between Mary Beth and her father was something brought into question later on in this case, with Mary Beth contradicting herself in various different sources. In one source, she would later tell an investigator that her father had actually, on one occasion, abused her and locked her in a closet. Mary Beth would change this story in the courts and claim that her father was simply trying to swat a fly away and hit her by accident. The truth is still unclear to this day. Regardless, Mary Beth dreamed of graduating from high school and going on to college, though she was unsuccessful in her endeavours. This saw her fall into a series of low-paying and unskilled dead-end jobs. Her dreams of college had been shattered, and Mary Beth's future career plans were uncertain. After a stint of going from job to job, Mary Beth eventually began working as a nurse's aide at the Ellis Hospital in Schenectady. At this job, she was neither excelling in her position nor falling short. She was, as with her entire life up until now, just average. And this average achievement wasn't exclusive to her career and education, it also applied to her dating life. It's unclear whether Mary Beth had been on many dates, but what we do know is that in 1963, a friend of hers set her up on a blind date. 
and the blind dates went averagely well. Mary Beth decided to see her date again and the pair soon coupled up. Mary Beth's boyfriend, Joe Tinning, was described by all those who knew him as being a somewhat shy and reserved man. He was kind, never got into trouble with the law, and he was polite. Joe actually worked for the same company that Mary Beth's father worked for, General Electric. Two years after the couple had first met on the blind date, in 1965, Mary Beth and Joe were married. The wedding, as with most of this case so far, was average, and the marriage too was average. It may seem harsh to hear, but Mary Beth was simply average. Every aspect of her life was mediocre. Nothing was notable at all. And it wasn't long before the newlywed couple brought their first child into the world. Barbara Tinning was born on the 31st of May in 1967, two years after Mary Beth and Joe had married. Three years later, on the 10th of January 1970, the couple welcomed another child into their family, who they called Joseph Tinning. The young family, as most families at the time, works hard to support themselves and to give their children the best possible future. The year after the birth of their second child, Joseph Tinning, in 1971, Mary Beth found herself to be with child for a third time. From the outside, this average family seemed to be succeeding in supporting themselves and their children, but behind closed doors, unseen red flags were presenting themselves. According to friends of the family, Mary Beth was not the mother she portrayed herself to be. Mary Beth's husband, Joe, absolutely adored children and loved every moment he spent with them, but Mary Beth only seemed to love them as if they were accessories. She hated the mess they made, the sleepless nights, the changing of diapers, and the constant noise that comes along with bringing up children. Mary Beth only liked her children as toys. She would quickly lose her temper with her kids and punish them for typical kid behaviour, such as making a mess while playing and just running around. And with a third baby on the way, Mary Beth's sleepless nights were soon to become worse. Sadly, while Mary Beth was seven months pregnant with her third child, she received some devastating news. It was in October of that same year, 1971, when her father suddenly passed away after suffering a cardiac arrest. Mary Beth suffered this loss with great pain, and she was surrounded with love and support from her friends to help her through that incredibly difficult period. Three months later, on the 26th of December 1971, Mary Beth gave birth to her third child, Jennifer Tinning. Though Mary Beth and Joe would only have their newly born daughter in their lives, for just over a week before she would be torn so tragically away from them. Shortly after Jennifer's birth, while still in the hospital, the baby, Jennifer, was diagnosed with meningitis, and eight days after coming into the world, on the 3rd of January 1972, Jennifer Tinning passed away after fighting a severe infection. Jennifer was born within the walls of the hospital and lived her entire life within those walls, without ever being able to go home. The loss of their third baby was, understandably, extremely devastating to the Tinning family. Mary Beth had not long lost her father, and she had now lost her baby. 
two tragic events which no doubtedly had a severely negative impact on her mental health. Mary Beth's mental health had been fragile prior to these tragedies, with her friends noting her to have been acting in a strange manner and being somewhat distant. After the loss of Jennifer, understandably, Mary Beth became even more distant. But the unwritten universal rule of three would bring a third tragedy to the young family. 17 days after Jennifer's passing, on the 20th of January 1972, Joseph Jr., the couple's second child, was rushed to the emergency room after reportedly suffering from some kind of a seizure. The doctors immediately put Joseph Jr. under observation while they ran a whole manner of tests to establish the causes of the seizure, though their tests yielded no results. The doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with the young boy, and so, after exhausting all of their options, the doctors discharged Joseph Jr. and sent him back home. Several hours after being discharged, Joseph Jr. was brought back into the emergency room, only this time two-year-old Joseph Jr. was dead. According to Mary Beth, after they had returned back home, she had put Joseph Jr. to bed to get some rest. And when she had returned just a handful of hours later to check up on her only son, she had discovered him tangled up in his bedsheets and completely blue in the face. Joseph Jr. was pronounced dead on arrival in the emergency room, with his death presumably due to asphyxiation caused by becoming entangled during a seizure. An autopsy was not ordered due to this presumption, and he was released to the morgue. Mary Beth's entire family and all of her friends flocked to be by her side to support her through the third tragedy in less than six months. She was showered with love, attention, and sympathy. It's important to note that friends of the family would later tell investigators that Mary Beth's behaviour was very strange while being consoled. She seemed to enjoy the fuss and attention that these tragedies had brought to her. A senior investigator in the New York State Police Force would later describe how this attention and fuss became a purpose of life to Mary Beth. Something had clicked with her psychologically, and like a substance abuser chasing a high, she lived to be fussed over in this manner. She fed off the attention these tragedies had brought her. The family was in a state of constant mourning. They lost Mary Beth's father, their third child Jennifer, and now their only son Joseph Jr. However, the series of unfortunate tragedies would continue to unfold for the Tinning family. Not even six weeks after the death of Joseph Jr., Mary Beth rushed her only surviving child, four-year-old Barbara, to the emergency room. Barbara had allegedly gone into convulsions at home and the doctors were extremely concerned. They requested to keep Barbara in overnight for observation and so that they could run further tests, but Mary Beth had other ideas. She believed that a stay overnight in the hospital would be too scary for the four-year-old and insisted on taking her home where she would feel safe. And so, against medical advice, Mary Beth took Barbara back home to rest. After being home for a few hours, Mary Beth rushed back to the emergency room with four-year-old Barbara unconscious in her arms. And after being admitted to the hospital and being given a hospital bed, Barbara sadly passed away from unknown causes on the 2nd of March, 1972. 
The Tinning family had lost all of their children and had suffered the loss of Mary Beth's father. Doctors began to scramble to determine what exactly had happened to Barbara, what had caused her to suddenly go from a happy and creative child to being so gravely ill. The disorder Ray's syndrome was suspected to have been the cause of Barbara's sudden passing. Ray's syndrome is an extremely rare disorder that causes serious liver and brain damage, and if it isn't treated in the correct manner, it can lead to permanent brain injury or death. The syndrome, especially at the time of Barbara's passing, was little understood. We now know that it mainly affects children and young adults under the age of 20 and can begin usually following a viral infection. It was never proven that Barbara had actually succumbed to Ray's syndrome, largely due to the lack of understanding of the disorder at the time. It was only ever suspected. All of Mary Beth and Joe Tinning's children had died within 90 days of one another. Regardless of whether they had actually suffered from Ray's syndrome or whether sudden infant death syndrome had played a role, the loss of three children in such a short space of time was unheard of. Both Barbara and Joseph Jr. had been healthy, fit and active before their sudden passing, and so concerns about a genetic disorder were raised. Perhaps there was a genetic mutation that was being passed to the children, causing them to experience these sudden deaths. So you can imagine the surprise of the Tinning family friends when, the year after the loss of all of their children, in 1973, Mary Beth announced that she was pregnant with her fourth child. On the 21st of November 1973, Thanksgiving Day, Timothy Tinning was brought into the world. Timothy was a small baby weighing just over five pounds. And two days after Timothy was born, Mary Beth brought him home. The family had suffered enough tragedy for several lifetimes now, and they had turned a new leaf. Things started out well for the family. That was until the 10th of December, just three weeks after Timothy had been born. Mary Beth rushed with her newborn to the emergency department, and sadly, Timothy was pronounced dead on arrival. According to Mary Beth, she had discovered Timothy lifeless in his crib. Doctors performed several tests to try to determine the medical cause for Timothy's death, but they were unable to find anything out of the ordinary. Timothy was a healthy newborn baby. The official cause of death was subsequently listed as Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. According to the NHS website, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS, sometimes known as COT death, is the sudden, unexpected and unexplained death of an apparently healthy baby. In the UK, more than 200 babies die suddenly and unexpectedly every year. This statistic may sound alarming, but SIDS is rare and the risk of your baby or a baby dying from it is very low. Most deaths happen during the first six months of a baby's life. Infants born prematurely or with a low birth rate are at a greater risk. SIDS also tends to be slightly more common in baby boys. Sudden infant death syndrome usually occurs when a baby is asleep, although it can occasionally happen while they're awake. The exact cause of this syndrome is unknown, but it's thought to be down to a combination of factors. 
Experts believe SIDS occurs at a particular stage in a baby's development, and that it affects babies vulnerable to certain environmental stresses. This vulnerability may be caused by being born prematurely, like I said, or having a low birth rate, or because of other reasons that have not yet been identified. At the time of Timothy's death, the medical world's understanding of sudden infant death syndrome was not as developed as it is today and so it seemed that the syndrome had been his cause of death. The Tinning family had lost five members of their family within a span of three years, Mary Beth's father and all four of their children. It seemed to be only logical for the couple to seek other means of having children, such as adopting or surrogacy, as if it were a genetic mutation that was the root cause of the sudden deaths, it would be simply unethical and immoral to continue trying for biological children. And so, for two years after Timothy's death, Mary Beth and Joe Tinning avoided conceiving any further children. Or so they thought. On the 30th of March 1975, an Easter Sunday, the couple's fifth child was born into the world, a son who they named lovingly Nathan. Nathan was described as having beautiful blonde hair with big blue eyes and a smile that can melt even the coldest of hearts. However, as with the four other Tinning children, Nathan's life would be short-lived. At just five months old, on the 2nd of September 1975, Nathan was rushed to hospital after Mary Beth had realised he'd stopped breathing. She had been driving with five-month-old Nathan in the front seat of the car when she had realised that he wasn't breathing. Nathan was sadly pronounced dead on arrival. Again, doctors scrambled to try to find a medical reason for Nathan's sudden death, but they found nothing. How had all five of Mary Beth and Joe Tinning's children passed away so suddenly? What has medically caused them to pass away so quickly? Doctors were stumped, and friends of the Tinning family were very concerned. Each perfectly healthy Tinning child had been exclusively in the care of Mary Beth when they had taken a sudden turn for the worse. Following Nathan's death, the couple decided to definitely go down the route of adopting a child. And two years after Nathan had passed, in 1978, the couple were successful in their adoption attempts. Though, at the same time that they were informed that they had been successful in their adoption of a child, Mary Beth realised that she was pregnant with the couple's sixth biological child. And despite this unexpected pregnancy, the couple decided that they wanted to continue on with their adoption. On the 3rd of August 1978, Michael was born and was adopted into the Tinning family. The adoption agency finalised the process, and the couple received full custody of the newborn baby Michael. Mary Beth was seven months pregnant with her sixth biological child when they adopted Michael, and so two months later, on the 29th of August 1978, she gave birth to Mary Frances Tinning, a daughter. And sadly, as with the five other biological Tinning children, Mary Frances Tinning would live a short life. In January of 1979, Mary Beth rushed to the emergency department with her baby Mary Frances in arms. It's interesting to note that the Tinning family at this point lived in an apartment directly across the road from the hospital. Mary Beth told the doctors that the baby had suffered from some kind of a seizure. 
Miraculously, the doctors and nurses at the hospital were able to successfully revive the baby, and after a period of observation, Mary Frances was discharged from the hospital and brought home, though it would only be a month before the four-month-old baby would be rushed back into the emergency department. Mary Beth told the doctors, as she had with every other biological tinning child, that she had discovered Mary Frances unconscious in her crib and immediately rushed the baby to the hospital. Sadly, Mary Frances was determined to have been brain dead upon arrival and was taken off life support. The baby Mary Frances passed away on the 22nd of February 1979. An autopsy conducted on the baby answered no questions that the doctors or Mary Beth had as to the cause of Mary Frances's death and it was ultimately put down as Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. The family's adopted baby, Michael, had remained healthy and well throughout this, and for some reason, Mary Beth decided that she wanted to get pregnant again. On the 19th of November 1979, the same year that the couple had lost Mary Frances, Mary Beth gave birth to her seventh child, who they named Jonathan. Fears that Jonathan had inherited the same genetic mutation that had caused the death of the six other biological tinning children were high. Michael, on the other hand, had remained in really good health and celebrated his first birthday with his adoptive family. Perhaps a genetic mutation truly was at the root of all these tragedies, and this suspected genetic mutation would sadly strike for the seventh time. In late March of 1980, Mary Beth rushed to the emergency department with the baby Jonathan cradled in her arms. Jonathan was unconscious, and as was the case for Mary Frances, the doctors and nurses were able to successfully revive the newborn baby. But this time would be different. The doctors were highly aware of the family history of sudden infant death syndrome and decided that the baby Jonathan should be immediately examined by the best paediatricians and child healthcare experts there were. Jonathan was sent to Boston Hospital to be examined and despite their best efforts, the medical professionals were unable to find any medical reason for why Jonathan had suddenly stopped breathing. And so, the baby Jonathan was sent back home. The doctors were, yet again, completely stunned. And like clockwork, a few days after Jonathan had been sent back home with Mary Beth, he was rushed back into the emergency department. Jonathan was determined, like Mary Frances, to have been brain dead on arrival. The baby passed away on the 24th of March, 1980. The seventh tinning child to have died in this exact manner, and still, no major red flags were being raised in this case. Professionals presumed there to have been this genetic mutation that was causing these deaths. That was until the 2nd of March, 1981, when the then-two-and-a-half-year-old Michael Tinning, the only non-biological child of the couple, would be brought into the family's paediatrician's office. Mary Beth had brought the unconscious toddler into the paediatrician's office, wrapped in a blanket. She claimed to her paediatrician that she hadn't been able to wake Michael up that morning and that she had no idea what was wrong with him. Mary Beth had tried to wake Michael up for the doctor's appointment they had scheduled that morning, but found him to be limp and barely responsive. After the paediatrician had examined Michael, it was determined that he had sadly passed away. An autopsy was conducted to determine the exact cause of death, 
and the pathologist found Michael to have traces of pneumonia, but not nearly enough to have been fatal to the child. Michael's death shut down the long-running theory that the Tinning family had a faulty genetic disorder or mutation causing the deaths. Michael was not biologically related, so something wasn't adding up. Not only was the genetic disorder ruled out, but Mary Beth's actions that morning were also brought into question. The family lived literally across the streets from the emergency department, but instead of immediately taking Michael across the road to seek medical attention, as soon as she realised something was wrong, as she had done with all of her other children, she had waited until her paediatrician's office opened to take him in to be examined. This meant that crucial time to save Michael's life was lost. But even after eight children had died under the care of Mary Beth Tinning, she was still not criminally investigated. It would sadly take the death of the family's ninth child before any action would be taken. On the 22nd of August, 1985, the now 42-year-old Mary Beth Tinning gave birth to her eighth biological child, her ninth child overall, who she named Tammy Lynn. And as has been the story for all of the children in Mary Beth's case, Tammy Lynn's life would be short-lived. On the 20th of December, the almost three-month-old newborn's life would come to an end. The day before, on the 19th, Mary Beth had been out shopping with a friend of hers who also just so happened to be a practical nurse. After the shopping excursion, the three went back to Mary Beth's family home. The family friend stayed for only a handful of minutes, and after asking to hold Tammy Lynn and being told straight away to give the baby back, this family friend left. Much later that night, going into the 20th of December, the family friend received a phone call from Mary Beth. Mary Beth screamed at this family friend over the phone to get her to her home as quickly as possible. This family friend only lived next door to the Tinning family, so arrived within moments. And when the family friend, who as I mentioned earlier was a practical nurse, entered the Tinning family home, she found the almost three-month-old Tammy Lynn lying on the changing table, completely purple. The family friend's medical training kicked in, and she immediately began to try to find any signs of life, but Tammy Lynn was unresponsive, had no pulse, and wasn't breathing. Emergency services were contacted and immediately dispatched to the family home, which was conveniently across the street from the hospital, while the family friend tried to desperately figure out what happened to Tammy Lynn. The paramedics arrived quickly and immediately took Tammy Lynn straight to the hospital. Unfortunately, the almost three-month-old newborn Tammy Lynn was pronounced dead on arrival. The family friend, desperate for some answers, asked Mary Beth what exactly had happened, and Mary Beth claims that Tammy Lynn had become tangled in her blankets. This time, things would be different in the aftermath of Tammy Lynn's death. The doctors at the hospital had a heightened awareness of the extensively disturbing family history of child deaths. Every one of the children had died under Mary Beth's exclusive care with nobody there to have witnessed the discovery of her child in trouble. Suspicions that Mary Beth had some involvement in the sudden deaths began to quickly and finally grow. The family friends that had come to Mary Beth's aid decided to go and visit Mary Beth the day after Tammy Lynn had passed, just to console her and check in. 
But when she entered the family home, she found both Mary Beth and her husband Joe sat at the table eating breakfast like nothing had happened. The family friend told the couple that she was there if they needed her before giving her condolences and leaving. Joe Tinning seemed unfazed by every death that the family had mourned. According to some sources, after each death, Joe would wear the same suit, go to the official services at the same funeral parlor, keep himself to himself and not make conversation with anyone. What was going on behind closed doors in the Tinning family home? A question so many people had in this case. Mary Beth's behavior at the funeral proceedings were just as curious. She would seem as if she was enjoying the attention. Shortly after Tammy Lynn's funeral, she invited friends over for brunch and her behavior at this brunch was really strange. It was as if nothing had ever happened. She wasn't upset. She was happily chatting away and munching on her food. Family friends would later describe Mary Beth as being completely unbothered by her losses. But Tammy Lynn's death would be the end of the road for Mary Beth. She had lost nine children over a span of 14 years, all of whom had been under her care and all of whom had died with only Mary Beth present and the police's interest in what was going on had finally peaked. On the 4th of February 1986, Mary Beth Tinning was brought in for questioning by the Schenectady Police Department concerning the death of her ninth child, Timmy Lynn. The autopsy that had been conducted on Timmy Lynn had found no obvious cause of death and the family history was raising flags. Joe Tinning, Mary Beth's husband, was also separately brought in for questioning. When Mary Beth's questioning began and they informed her that she was being questioned about the death of Tammy Lynn and that they wanted details on what exactly happened, Mary Beth told the investigators, I know what you're here for. You're going to arrest me and take me to jail. But Mary Beth wasn't under arrest. The investigators simply wanted to speak with her. During the interview, Mary Beth reeled off her life story. She revealed what her life was like as a child, her upbringing, and how she had painfully grieved over the deaths of each of her nine children. She categorically denied having any parts in their deaths. Mary Beth told the authorities that, besides Jennifer, who had died as a result of an infection, all of her children had passed away due to sudden infant death syndrome or due to a genetic disorder. She then went into more detail about what had happened the night of Tammy Lynn's death. She claims that she had put Tammy Lynn to sleep in her crib as she always did and that Tammy Lynn had been in a bad mood, crying a lot before being put in her crib. Mary Beth claimed that Tammy Lynn's crying upset her as it made her feel like she was an unfit mother. After watching television alone for a while, she decided to go check on Tammy Lynn, which was when she discovered that she wasn't breathing. Mary Beth then pulled her from the crib, puts her on the changing table and tried to revive her, but to no avail. She then woke up her husband and called for help. Though the investigators had trouble believing her story, sudden infant death syndrome only occurs while the baby's in the crib and the baby does not die in its mother's arms. Some research suggests that the only known way to prevent death from SIDS is by picking up the baby. Mary Beth's stories of each death were the only facts available as no one else was present to corroborate them. She had a complete control of the narrative and nobody wanted to challenge a grieving mother's version of events. The investigators then began to confront Mary Beth with their suspicions that she had been involved. 
She initially denied any part of it, but after several hours of questioning, the mother of nine deceased children gave in. She told the investigators, I did not do anything to Jennifer, Joseph, Barbara, Michael, Mary Frances, or Jonathan, just these three, Timothy, Nathan, and Tammy. I smothered them each with a pillow because I'm not a good mother. I'm not a good mother because of the other children. At the end of the interview, Mary Beth was permitted to meet with her husband Joe in the interrogation room. The conversation was short and Joe asked Mary Beth to only tell him the truth. And after shedding some tears, she confessed to the murder of three of their children. The police only needed a enough evidence to pin Mary Beth for the murder of one child to put her away. And so a court stenographer was brought in and Mary Beth dictated a 36-page confession. In this confession, she admitted to smothering three of her children, Timothy, Nathan, and Tammy, but she denied her involvement in the other children's deaths. Mary Beth Tinning was subsequently arrested and charged with one count of second-degree murder in the death of Tammy Lynn Tinning. Her bail was set at $100,000, which she actually paid. This meant that she was released from custody until her trial date, which began on the 22nd of June, 1987. The trial lasted six weeks, and after the jury deliberated for 23 hours, a verdict was reached. Mary Beth was found guilty on one count of murder. She was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison, which is actually five years less than the maximum penalty. Mary Beth tried to appeal her conviction, but her appeal was denied in 1988. She came up for parole in March of 2007, and she was denied parole. She went before the parole board again in 2009, 2011, 2015, and 2017, but was denied parole each time. At the age of 76, Mary Beth Tinning went before the parole board again in 2018, though this time she was successful and was granted parole, being released on the 21st of August, 2018. To this day, she denies having any involvement in all but three of her kids' deaths many people believe that she was responsible for all of them, besides Jennifer, who had died of the uh, infection. And that's everything I have for you in today's case. Let me know down in the comments section what you thought about this case. It is one that is painful to delve into, the unnecessary deaths and the lack of proper investigation from the start, really, infuriates me. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and that you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. And make sure you jump over to my store, joshuamiles.shop, and get yourself something from there. 10% of each purchase is being donated to the DNA Doe Project. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.